I think with the way players get developed, there's not enough chaos and competition in drills, in practices. As they come up, everything's clean. I really enjoy going and watching a coach and most master coaches I've had the opportunity to watch. There's a little bit of mess to the practice. It's ugly. When I was a young coach, I used to have the best sexy looking practices and we'd go out on the weekends and we'd get our backsides handed to us. And I didn't understand what was the problem until I realized that I was doing a practice to make my ego look good. I wasn't helping my players. I'm Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome assistant coach for the Chicago Bulls, Damian Cotter. Coach Cotter is here today to discuss the elements of tough teams and players, the value of messy practices, and we talk defending shooters, and the six ingredients of drill structure during the always fun start, sub, or sit. We've got an exciting and brand new addition to the SGTV library this week as we're releasing the latest installment of our late game film room series, Crunch Time. And for the newest chapter in this series, we're joined by coach Tobin Anderson to help us pull apart and analyze the film of the last four minutes of FDU's historic upset of number one Purdue in the NCAA tournament this past season. Like former guests on the series, such as Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Josh Leffler, and more, Coach Anderson details the tactical decisions, play calls, and goes behind the scenes to give us insight on FDU's magical night. Visit slappingglass.com to become an SG Plus member or sign up for our free Sunday morning newsletter to learn more today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Damian Cotter. Coach, thank you very much for making the time. We're really excited to have you this morning. Pleasure to be here, Dan, Pat. You know, I've listened to a few of your podcasts and I've got some colleagues that are big fans. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Coach. We appreciate that. So we want to dive in at the top here. Something we were talking about a little bit off air is teaching toughness. And it's a conversation Pat and I have enjoyed talking about with coaches actually this off season and what that looks like, what that means now with a modern player, how that comes across in practice. And so we'll start there kind of broadly with it for you on what toughness is and and how you think about teaching it. It's a good question. Like the two words I hate players being labeled with is when they get blanketed with he's soft or he's tough, because what's that mean? And I'll go back, like in another part of my journey, I was a head coach of New South Wales Institute of Sport, and it was a fabulous job. It was like all care and no responsibility. The athletes came into my program from remote areas in New South Wales. We're based at Sydney Olympic Park. We did a lot of development work, but they still went back and played for their clubs. But what that job gave me was access to other sports. And you probably know this, you know, Australia's well-renowned for its violent games, their winter sports with Australian football and rugby. And I was talking to a mentor of mine one day who was involved with a rugby league club up in Newcastle. And I made an offhanded remark about a player being soft. And he just looked at me and you know, gave me a, a harsh tone and said, that's rubbish. I said, what? He goes, well, define it. What's soft mean? 
And it's the same for toughness. And I think what's toughness mean? And you have to really know what it means to you. So if you're using rugby league as an example, that is probably the most physical, tough game, one of the top three guaranteed in the world. But then you have a look at Jimmy Butler's performance just recently. That's tough. And we as coaches at times, we look for the simple answer to get out of the hard conversation. And I think it's really important. And I think now you have to take into consideration kids today, and this isn't recent, this has been a while, you know, the no money fun days are gone. So when was the last time you were driving through the street and you saw kids playing cricket or football, whatever sport, and the bikes are everywhere and it just doesn't happen. And what kids don't get access to now is playing against older kids. Like I learned more about sport playing Australian football, you know, against kids three, four years older than me. I learned about competition in that way. And the thing is now, with everything being structured for these young people, everything's been paid for, it creates a different dynamic with parents' expectations. But kids don't get the opportunity to just develop competition integrity and you're 10 years of age and you're playing against a 13-year-old, that's like someone twice your size. Like you learn some things and, you know, you read up on great players and their stories. A lot of times these days, there's a big brother involved. You know, there's some sort of access to playing. And what we did, you know, we're going back a little bit. I was involved with a big club called Knox Basketball Club in Melbourne. I was responsible for the whole feeder system from under 10s to under 20s. So to develop the girls, we had them playing against younger boys. To develop the boys, we had them playing against older boys, you know, and our better younger ploy, and this is why I think there's a lot more European bigs in the league. It's not because there's not good, talented bigs here. Those bigs get exposed to playing against, you know, as a 15-year-old talented young fellow overseas, you're playing against men. So you're developing some competitive toughness through that. You know, for me, Defining toughness is an element of being physically courageous, you know, putting your body in place and also having that ability to execute under pressure in the game. And that's my definition. And I think it's really important that coaches know what they're saying. And the other thing I said, I think labeling a player soft is exactly the same as labeling a player tough. Thanks for sharing a lot of good stuff there. I'd like to just quickly follow up. You mentioned that competition integrity and that you think some of that is being lost in the game today. I guess kind of the same question as toughness. Could you just kind of define what competition integrity is to you? I think the system, and it's not just in the US, but you've got the IAU system where it's individualized, centric, and it's about numbers. And that's more valued than wins, you know, impacting winning. And the ability to put your body in place, to guard your man, to block out your man, to run the lane, even though you're not going to get the ball, but you doing so stretches the defense. That's all elements, to me, of competition integrity. And I think when you put your practices together, you have to take that in mind. And the contact thing's an interesting thing now because what my theory is, and I remember that the head strength and conditioning coach at that New South Wales Institute of Sport, we had all our coaches in the theater, and he said the reality is now Kids don't climb trees like they used to. Even elite athletes that come in from all sports are generally physically weaker. And that goes for the competition element. They're not getting exposed to that. You know, I learned more about how to protect myself after I got put on my backside 
playing football against older kids. And I remember playing football as a seven-year-old against grade sixes. And there was no mercy at the Basin Primary, let me, let me tell you. <laughs> but what we do now, like, you know, we did it yesterday, one of our young players, we did everything with contacts. We warm up and then everything's with contact in some form because when you get challenged physically, and this is a big player, it's human nature to stand up, whereas it's of, of greater benefit to sit lower and absorb the contact through your core. And so it was the challenge for him. And that's how we'd start doing finishes. There's a body into him. It looks a little bit ugly, but it's better for him long-term. And I think modernization of coaching and what's considered skill development, I think you have to fabricate contact in your drilling now. I'd love to follow up when you made the distinction and we used Jimmy Butler as an example, but you talked about mental and physical toughness and you talked about the physical having the courage and mental being able to execute and all of that. I'd love to ask you about the mental side too, as we're kind of talking about physical stuff right now, but training players, helping players with that element of executing, being mentally tough, being able to overcome adversity, all those kinds of things kind of outside of the physical realm. To me, development's like physical development, working on your body, you know, skill acquisition, and then mental performance. The beauty of today's day and age is there's so much access to good quality people. And in Australia, I left Melbourne to go to Sydney and I had the basketball program and they go, here's your sports psychologist. It was my first exposure to that. That was 2007. What I got from those experiences, the mental piece needs to be nourished. It needs to be developed. And I have one example that's really vivid in my mind. We had this great sports psychologist there. He was a surfer. And I remember him talking to these young people. It was about stress management under pressure, right? And he just talked about the difference between fantasy and reality. He basically said a lot of our problems come from the fantasy of what might happen or the repercussions of what just happened. I remember watching these young kids that I was responsible for the impact it had on them was amazing. And this institute, it's a second tier program. It doesn't exist anymore. But out of that program, we had a couple of kids that overcome the odds and have impacted our national program. And I always think it wasn't so much about the physical piece. It wasn't so much about the skill acquisition because there's plenty of that. It was the fact that we started educating those kids on the importance of developing a strategy mentally for high performance. And you have to be discerning when you start getting other people involved. But if I had influence on, and I don't, I don't step over the line, but I would have every athlete having their own mental performance coach. And for me, that's the three prong. And, and I think in Australia, most young athletes are of some sort of standard have education in the importance of getting yourself mentally organized to perform consistently at a high level. Coach, if I can get a little bit specific in terms of a practice setting. A conversation me and Dan have had recently is you have experience with players who have trouble performing, let's say in in a late game setting under pressure. And what we as coaches can do to help them in the practice setting. So in terms of like how you think about, again, going into this executing under pressure, but drilling late game scenarios and helping guys get more comfortable. And so the coaches can trust them to perform in the game when the lights are on. Yeah, it's a good question. And my last head coaching job before I come on staff with Coach Donovan was uh, coaching the G League team here. And I loved it. Any coach that's up and coming that can get experience to coach in the G League, I think it would be the best years of your coaching development. I strongly recommend it. But trying to help these young kids and trying to stay 
outside of the results at times because the team was really good and really bad. It depends on a lot of factors. And, but we tried to develop some consistency and I ended up going through and I think this is me for life now, but my components of practice, I would have a pre-practice stuff would be your skill development. That would be your one on zero. But once we finish our warm up, it's one on one, three on three, five on five and a running drill. And I would use those parameters to try and tick off whatever we needed. I would always want an element of competition. There would always be games to score. There'd be small games and there'd be a penalty and reward going back to the what we spoke about before about teaching toughness. Now, getting more detail to the answer, as the year went on, after the warm-up, we would start with the end in mind. And the players loved it. For example, we would do an end-of-game situation and we'd make it up and just do it. And I'd diagram a play or it's a defensive, whatever. And then we might break up and go into one-on-one and be working on closeouts, for example. Come back, work on two-for-one situation. 50 seconds on the clock, free throw. Work on your free throw, offense, defense, play the 40 seconds. And then you've still got the end of game element to it. Then we played the last three minutes and a wonderful teaching for these kids. And it was consistent dialogue about the game. I really felt those kids improved and quite a few of them have gone on to have solid careers internationally. And then the other component would be the end of quarters. You know, we'd be teaching like the end of the second quarter, how to manage that. So things would be tied in and we'd be layering in some teaching in that the three on three, it might be an offensive emphasis or a defensive emphasis or both. And it'd be competent. And then within 40 minutes, you've had a pretty good practice. You've ticked off a lot of boxes. I think the running drill is really important because they don't go back to what I was talking about before the lack of no money fun, that intrinsic decision-making skills are generally lacking. It takes even players at this level. The younger players struggle with that, especially if they've come drafted a little bit further back. And that's something you've got to deal with. And, you know, those old school continuity, two on one, three on two, they're great drills. You know, like the old school is a good school. And we would have those drills where there'd be a decision making process on everything. And that was a wonderful experience coaching that team and developing, and what was I, 48, 49, having an opportunity to really go, this is how I think you should be developing players and you know we tried to educate pressure situations and again that's for everybody that was helping me as well as a coach you know it wasn't players you know like it would put pressure on me and my assistants at the time and we were talking and if I ever do it again when we do the special situation thing when we were going to like put all different ideas on a bit of paper and put it in and then we'd just pull one out of a hat and to put pressure on us so it would help us develop but I think you've got to have a discipline of framework of how you want practices to look. And, you know, what I just said about the one-on-one, three-on-three, five-on-five running drill, that really fits the way I like it because I think with the way players get developed, there's not enough chaos and competition in drills, in practices. As they come up, everything's clean. I really enjoy going and watching a coach and most master coaches I've had the opportunity to watch. There's a little bit of mess to the practice. It's ugly. And then you watch all these close games that currently on the play. Mistakes get made, like basic mistakes get made because of the pressure of competition and the frenetic nature of playoff basketball. Coach, and maybe it's a little bit reverting back because I want to get back to some of the practice stuff, but talking a little bit about the toughness and maybe this is within this question too, but beginning, we're talking a little bit about creating tough individuals and working like, you know, physical versus mental toughness. And 
kind of like to ask you about the like a team toughness. There's certain times you watch a team play and just, you know, one through 15 coaching staff, there's a tough mentality on that team. And you can tell how they play. Everything is together. And there's just a toughness that runs through the entire team. And I wonder over your time of coaching and watching other coaches, what goes into that? That's the art of coaching, isn't it? Miami's the best example that we're talking about of that right now. And it's certainly something we want to strive towards where you have chemistry and cohesion under pressure. It's the dreaded C word culture. Culture to me is just behavior and increments of behavior over time. And we talked about implementing some of those behaviors through education of my ideals and philosophies with how practice get run. But you've got to build cohesion in your teams and cohesion's broken into two parts, task and social. And when I was a young coach, I didn't rate the social thing. And Australians, if you watch Australian teams play, there is an element of what you were talking about that's just there. You know, I could really self-indulge right now, but I'll restrain myself, you know, when I start talking about Australian sport. But it's really important that you try and do through task and social that you're building connection. Because those teams that we all admire, the other word is continuity. They've had a bit of continuity that's allowed them to grow, which I think is important. And I always reflect on my mistakes as a younger person as I was impatient with that. And I was all about the task cohesion when I was a young coach. You know, I was all about getting the magic offense or whatever is the current trend. And as you mature and you start to realize, unless the players really respect one another and can really trust one another, and trust is really important and it takes time, you're in trouble. You know, you're never going to have that consistent performance. And to me, trust is competency and it's also benevolency and it's also honesty. You know, like that takes time. You just think about, and this is stuff I started spending more time thinking about. You can't expect a new player that comes into a team just to straight away trust. Now, if the team's been established and the behaviors have been established, it's a little bit easier because most people go with the flow, whether it's good or bad. And then, you know, attached to that, if you have the opportunity to get the right people, and I was talking about it with my colleagues yesterday about culture carriers. You know, people, they don't have to be the best player, but to me, they've got to be the best worker if they're not the best player. They have to set standards in other ways if you can get that type of leadership. But the social side of it wasn't until I started doing social activities and having simple dinners on a consistent basis where players were outside of their environment competition, they got to get to know each other and develop a more intrinsic respect for each other. That started transferring. And I'm talking about when I was coaching the second level in Australia at the same club I mentioned, but the teams were good at the back end of my tenure there. I can't even tell you what I ran. Oh, I can, but but it was more about what we did together, what we did in preseason, what we did during the season that got players outside of themselves to be connected with others. That's a challenge for a young coach. I think it's a challenge for most environments these days because everybody's a lot busier, but you've got to figure out what that looks like for you and your setting. And you've got to take that into consideration. And it's a powerful thing if you can get it right. And I've been coaching over 20 years. I have had a couple of teams I've been involved with that really had it right. So it's hard. It's a difficult thing to attain. Coach, I'd like to jump back to when you said how you like to structure your practices and you mentioned running drills. Does that mean conditioning drills or that means just like we're just going to play a game five and five and just let it run? 
showing my age with this, but the five band weaves a running drill, you know, three path five men, and it's a conditioning drill, and it's a passing drill, and it's a cohesion drill. Three on two, two on one, three on two up, two on one back. That's a running drill. I would always have that. If we were going to have an element of conditioning, I wanted the ball involved and I wanted players moving and I wanted them talking. I think if you talk to players from that era of my team's coach, they're scarred from the five-man weave. (laughs) (laughs) Those teams are very, very good. And I always go back to the simple things of what we did when I reflect. It was that. And Australian teams run. Like I didn't understand how much culturally we run comparatively until I started getting involved with our national program. And then, you know, it just fits the numbers now. You know, it's better shot if you're good at playing quick. So I think it's crucial that players can make decisions. And, you know, you watch the NBA two-on-one, three-on-two situations. The good teams do it really well. The bad teams don't. So I do think it should be wide into, you know, if you're trying to educate and develop your players, that's a big part of the game. Coach, on the five-man weave, I feel like the weave has taken a lot of hits recently in the modern game. What is the value you found in the five-man weave or a weave drill? Like I said, it builds cohesion. Like we would have standards. Like I would have two sets of five, for example, and it'd be one trip up and back, three passes. Everyone had to get to their spots below the free throw line before they came back. You know, they had to communicate who's taking it out of the net. And then then it'd be two up and back, three up and back, four up and back, five up and back. And that would be our Thursday night practice, Knox Raiders at Roville Secondary College. And then we go straight in the five on five and get ready for the weekend's game, you know, semi-professional sport at its greatest. And I look back on those things and it really helped. I put it into the G League kids. I didn't have that high standard because what we did, if there was a drop ball or a missed layup, everything went back to zero. So I've got these part-time guys coming in and we were so well conditioned. They had to deal with adversity was what I was talking to before. I used to love it when they drop a ball, you know, or miss a layup. It wouldn't just impact the team they're on, it'd impact the other five guys. And I was there for nine years at that club. I didn't just rock up first day and do that. It took me time to get like-minded people in that they had guys, they'd work in that, you know, they'd be laboring outside in the middle of winter in Melbourne. And they'd come in and they'd, every Thursday, they'd have to put up with that shit from me. <laughs> and our teams were good, you know, like we were connected and they hung tough together. And I used to sit back and remove myself from it and just let them help each other. That's really what you want to do. And when you're trying to develop culture is become redundant in that culture where you're not the key driver. It's you're just a participant with the players. They're the key drivers. So, you know, there's more to it than whether it fits your offensive system or whatever. There's more to that, you know, and I'm talking about 10 minutes to 15 minutes max in a week for all the things that we got out of it. It was time well spent. And we did it in the G League kids. We had fluctuations of the season with good players coming and going and younger players that need to be developed. And we hung tough. You know, they, those kids ended up maintaining a second rating defense for the year, which was a really cool achievement when I look back on it because we were able to maintain our culture. And it was the goofy shit. It wasn't the like the five man weave. It was never like because, you know, I was this genius defensive coach or off. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was our ability to help each other, help our players develop confidence with each other and drive cohesion through that. It's all that stuff. That's where the R form comes into coaching, you know? Yeah. And it's different for different levels. We're not rocking out to the Chicago Bulls tomorrow and going, right, five-man weeze. It's different. <laughs> right. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. You have to know what your audience is. 
Coach, you also mentioned when you think about your practices and you structure them, having the end in mind. I guess I could focus in on the one-on-one and the three-on-three, how you thought, okay, here's my end in mind, how you thought about those drills. And the other question part is with the end in mind, I guess, like how many tasks was it like, we have two things I want to get done today or three, or I guess, was there a limit that you thought like, it shouldn't be more than three. We work on these three and that's how we structure the one-on-one, three-on-three, five-on-five. Yes, exactly to what you said. Like you've got to make decisions on whether you're reviewing a past performance or preparing for a future performance. And I think you've got to consistently keep those two parameters in mind as you're what you're asking players. But I feel very strongly that one-on-one is the best teacher of the game. So doing a wing closeout was pretty much a staple and having a five-second shot clock, I try prefer than bounces because sometimes you need that extra bounce, you know, as, as opposed to limiting. And I'm coaching men at this point. It might be better if you're trying to develop players to be more efficient with the basketball limit bounces. But we would do that. And I tend to coach the defensive side of the ball. So a lot of our breakdowns would be that emphasis. And, you know, like our three-on-three might be guarding pick and roll. And we're up to the level. And then we'd have the third man in, you know, as the MIG, you know, and then we'd let it go live. Those things, like you'd think about that. If you're working on it, you want to tighten up a feature of your offense, we might be working on a stagger away. And then we let it go live with a short shot clock because players have to keep learning to solve problem. That's where sometimes practice looks like a dung heap when you're allowed to go live. When I was a young coach, I used to have the best sexy looking practices and we'd go out on the weekends and we'd get our backsides handed to us. And I didn't understand what was the problem until I realized that I was doing a practice to make my ego look good. I wasn't helping my players. So you know, it's the art form, how you go through it, but you've got to keep tinkering with what works for you. And, you know, my journey and with the opportunities I've been given, these things really work for me. I went from coaching the biggest club in Australia and being responsible for that at that point in time. And then I went to an institute of sport where I'm just looking after 16, 18 year olds regionally and all individually. By the end of my time there, I try and get them together as much as we could and we play as much one-on-one as we could. And I thought that was the best for them. And we had good results coming out of that. And then I moved over here and got involved with the G League. And that's where I started. You know, like you can get a lot done in a short period of time if you've organized and you've got a framework in mind that you're going to hold yourself accountable to. And I think you can really help your players. You don't need a lot of time if you're organized and you've got a framework that works in your mind. And, you know, your questions before about culture stuff, all this sort of weaves into it. If my assistant coaches listen to this, they'll roll their eyes. I would say you have to weed the garden every day. You have to weed and water your garden every day. Like culture is that, you know, you've got to have standards that you flick a a young fella on the nose here and there just to keep them paddling forward and keep things rolling. And if you've got a framework, it really helps. Coach, my last question, just a philosophical one on why you opt for three on three over four on four. Uh, I have this debate with my current boss. He's a big four-on-four guy. (laughs) I think if you go to four-on-four, you might as well go to five-on-five. Okay. Because of the spacing. And I used to do a lot of four-on-four. And even though Shell now, I prefer to do five-on-five, you know? My philosophy for spacing, I just prefer the five-on-five. I'm so lucky that I work for Coach Donovan, and I learn something every day from that man. He's a master coach, and he coaches a lot in the four-on-four. And we give each other a hard time about it. But I learn every day. So it, it's just what works for you. And that's my reason of why. And I think it's more important that you have and why you do it. And that's my why. 
A quick thank you to our newest partner here at Slapping Glass, one of the best tech companies in the world of sports, Huddle. As many of you know, Huddle extends an array of useful products to coaches from their auto-tracking camera, Huddle Focus, live streaming tool, Huddle TV, wearable athlete performance tracker, Wemu, and their newest offering, Huddle Instat, an all-in-one data powerhouse platform that combines advanced tagging with a global film library. For more information on all that's offered with Huddle Instat, visit huddle.com slash slapping glass today. Thanks to Huddle for the support. And now back to our conversation. Coach, it's been awesome so far. Thanks for all your thoughts. We want to transition to a segment, kind of a lightning round. We call start, sub, or sit. For maybe those listening for the first time, we'll give you three different options. Ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one. So, Coach, if you're ready, we'll dive in with this first question for you. Go ahead. I'm nervous. (laughs) I think you'll be just fine here. This first start, sub, sit question has to do with defending a shooter and these are three different types of actions that a shooter would be in that are tough to defend we're kind of looking at maybe from like a scouting perspective so your first option is a shooter curling a screen and then they're going to come out off of some other action the second option is that shooter setting a rip or a back screen before they come out off of a screen and that third option is a shooter setting an on ball or ghosting an on ball screen they're all tough the toughest to start for me would be the curl into multiple actions if the shooter knows. The sub is the slip, especially late game. I think that's a challenge. You have to be organized for that. And then the rip screen, the back screen, that would be my set. I, we're just switching that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. I actually love to start with your sub, which is the shooter setting the on ball and slipping out. And you kind of mentioned late game, that's especially difficult. Yeah, the pressure of the game, you know, because normally that. Well, the guy with the ball in those situations is a good player. So that can create confusion. And, you know, you got time and score going. That's a tough one. Now, that was, I just went with multiple actions because if you're playing against a good player, that's hard. If you talk about in the game situations, I'm explaining, it might have creeped in the start. But I think that they're your three-on-three breakdown stuff, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier. I think it's important that you incorporate that stuff in your education of your players. Like I said before, we started doing more end-of-game situations earlier in practice, and it just made sense to me because our game's designed to be close, and I just think it's important that you help players. And the other thing, the other person that was getting helped a lot was myself. It was something that I started really improving at myself. Coach, I'd like to follow up about your start, the shooter curling, and looking specifically at what you're asking of the big or the man defending the screen given the fact that we know it's a shooter, so the defender is going to be chasing hard on his hip over. It depends on who's setting the screen, if it's single or double, but you want the big to be up because you don't want him being back there, especially if it's a shooting big that's setting that screen. But you want him to be up to take away the threat of the curl early. And then if it's a tight curl, most teams will will switch that. And um the context of that action in my mind when you guys asked me and put me under pressure like you did <laughs> was just in general play. You know, the team's coming down, they've run a stagger screen for a shooter and it's something we've been doing. Um, it wasn't an end of game situation. It's funny how I, that's where I went with different scenarios of, of what you're telling me, which was interesting. I'll be thinking about that one later on. <laughs> so thank you for that. This has been yeah, so well, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I think you've got to have your general rules and 
if it's a shooter, you want your beats to be more up to the level of the screen to discourage. It's really important that your habits carry over, that whoever's guarding the shooter is getting into the body early, which is hard to do. But good players and good teams will use those actions to create the next action, which is where you get hurt. I always think that stuff's hard to guard if late in games, late in quarters, if the teams are good at it and they've got a good player that's active off the ball and he's a good cutter. And I think those players are worth their weight in gold for those situations. You know, I'd want the screener to be active if, you know, how most teams do it, they'll switch the tight curl. You know, what kind of pressure do you have on the ball? It comes back to it as well. And then what are your other guys doing? Where are they in their loads? You know, so there's a lot to it. And then whatever the game is, are you switching everything off ball? Are you switching like on like, like players for like players? So I just think that stuff's hard to guard if it's well executed. And, you know, coming from Australia where we turn everything into a continuity and we get it to that third side and we'll cut you to death. I guess that's where my psychology went back to where I grew up into. It's interesting, really interesting when I think about my answers. Coach, my last follow-up is you mentioned on the tight curls and then even on the back screens, you're most likely to switch that. Is that like you hit on just fear of the next action that's coming and it's just a simpler solution? Yes. You know, when you're talking about structuring a defense, like what I said before about the end in mind, I like teaching switching very early in preparation. I don't like switching early in the season because I think it develops bad habits. But I think going back to my philosophy, because learning how to switch properly, it's a real team skill. And I like it because it develops cohesion because you're in your second day of training camp or preseason and you're already telling your players to communicate. And there's a physical element to it, which is what I like. And going back to your wonderful questions, like about the toughness and stuff. So, you know, you start talking those values. That's why I like teaching switching early. That's why it's probably going back to my philosophy. It got the third ranking. I think I would have done my work early, hopefully, in the preseason and got some degree of success. <laughs> yeah. Coach, I would just love to ask about when it comes to like a scout, sometimes with a shooter on these staggers or whatnot, instead of you know trailing the curl and switching, you'll see teams try to top lock early and force that shooter back down somewhere else. I guess what maybe goes into the decision of whether to trail and switch versus top lock and force somewhere else in some of these shooter situations. A lot of times what dictates that is the screener's capabilities. So it's hard to top lock if the screener can pop because you want that big to take away the back cut, right? That's something to take into. that. That's the, you know, the major one right there You know, for me. Another factor in it, if the offensive player doesn't like contact, you know, what will you do for that? First thing is running off screens down the other end, but it's hard to be successful without having a few physical defenders that are very selfless in nature. You might allow that player flexibility to top lock on situations, even though there's no basket coverage because you trust him because he's his innate feel for defense. You've got to take into account what's the screener's opportunity and who's covering the cutter. You know, what's his ability? Because we talk about these offensive players they're sort of rule breakers, but we have them defensively as well. They're rule breakers. You let them shoot bad shots that don't fit the analytics. We have them, the game's littered with them defensively as well, and they're worth their weight in gold, and you can give them leverage. Like, man, just do what you need to do here. You know, like, we're not going to bail you out with protecting the back cut. And there's some players that can really handle that sort of thing really well because they have defensive ability. 
All right, coach, our next start sub sit for you. We've danced around it a little bit, but getting back to the practice, we're going to ask about drill structuring. You know, in our research, you have, I think, six things that go into what you consider a, a good drill or structuring a drill, but we like to ask you on three of them and kind of start sub sit what you think would be the most important, you know, if we made you choose between one of your children. <laughs> so start sub sit these three components to structuring a good drill. Option one, the language. Option two, the rotation of the drill, or option three, the confusion of the drill, the level of confusion in the drill. Yes. Well, I think you guys know which one I'd start. What I want to do is explain where those come from. They actually come from a mentor of mine. Back in the day when I was a young coach, I used to visit Metro State with Mike Dunlap, and he was wonderful for me. And I still stay in touch with Mike, not as frequently as time, but Mike was wonderful. And that came from him. And I just morphed it. Now I say chaos and confusion. And that is number one. Because if you don't have mess, if you don't have competition in your practice, you might feel pretty good driving home in the car, but you're going to feel pretty bad after the game on the weekend. So that's number one. I do like rotation. I would say sub simply because I think you want to have your practices as efficient as possible. I, I think it's really important part of your education as a coach to instill a value of being efficient in practice that starts in day one of preseason. So I think that's my sub and the language, I do believe in that. And I think it's important. I actually find it challenging at times being an assistant with new words, but I think it's important that that's my sit. I think you can get away with that in comparison to the other two. I think they're all very important though. Coach, I'd love to follow up on the chaos confusion and how you think about, maybe with some examples, how do you add that element into a drill? Let's just use three on three as an example. Let's just do a staggered screen away. The emphasis is defense. You're guarding it, getting to the body, and you're navigating the second screen. And then that confusion can go into that second screen. It can either pin down for the first screen or set an on ball. You've got to structure it, or you can just say live and let it be random. I was very close to being Australia's three-on-three coach, but I got a job at Long Island. I changed country, so it was difficult. And if you ever get an opportunity, I recommend coaches to have a look at the FIBA three-on-three. It's a wonderful tool for teaching the game of basketball, especially bigs. They get more touches in a three-on-three game than what they do in a 40-minute game of five-on-five. But having an element after, you see young coaches, and I used to do this, I will do the staggered screen scenario, as I mentioned, and then it would just finish. You know, it would just finish with a shot. I think players have got to learn to play through mistakes. You might have to put some parameters up. Hey, it's either got to be an on-ball or a pin-down. Whatever it is, you might have to do that depending on your audience. You know, there was days with the G League guys, I'd let them go because I felt that they just needed not to be coached on that part. You know, do this for me, and then you guys have fun with this, but there's an eight-second part of that. And that's where... There's bad decisions. It's chaotic. And, you know, like I'm thinking about scenarios, it's coming back to me. The ball would get thrown to the cutter, an eight-second shot clock starts. Then I'd have one of my assistants sometimes just count down from eight. So they're dealing with that chaotic nature of the shot clock, which you really need to teach young players how to manage shot clock. Even in the NBA, that can improve. Coach, within those chaotic parts, like, so if we take that stagger screen and, you know, you're working on the defense, obviously you're going to coach that and kind of demand the details that go into it. But then when it gets to the chaos, the confusion, how much of an intervention will you have in that part? Or do you just strictly let them go and not get bogged down with too many other things that you're trying to teach with this segment? I think you've got to be really clear in your mind what you're going to tolerate. As a younger coach, I tried to coach the offense, the defense. And I go home miserable. 
And it wasn't until I figured out, be really deliberate of what you're coaching. If you've got it staffed, you can have it different emphasizers. But I always, with those sorts of drills, I clearly have in my mind what mistakes I'm going to tolerate. Because no matter how well you're prepared, the game provides coaches frustrating decisions from players, no matter how good you've done it. And it's a part of the game. And if I set up a drill, some sort of three-on-three scenario, for example, and my better players struggled with understanding, I would stop and explain it again. If one of my lower players, lesser players, talented players, I would ignore it, the mistake. And then, you know, we talked before about rotations. I'd be deliberate where I stand. Where you stand in practice is so crucial, depending on what you're trying to achieve. So if you've got your rotations organized, you can stand and you can do that incidental and formal coaching to the individual without disrupting the flow of a drill. And then I just have those markers in my mind. All right, if this player screws it up, I know I didn't explain it well. If I have the same mistake repeated, it needs to be addressed. And I would have discipline in my time block of how many times I would stop a drill. I just developed that over time. It served me well. You mentioned something interesting that when maybe a, let's say a higher minute guy, a higher level guy messed up the drill that you would stop it and maybe you didn't explain it properly. But when a lesser minute guy was kind of messing up, you would live with that mistake and just kind of keep going. I'd still address it, but I'd be standing in the rotation. Your rotations might be offense, defense out. So I'd be standing there and I would just talk to the player. I think it's a trap where you're trying to get perfection in your practice because there's no perfection in the game. I would stop it if a better player screwed it up because I would think, well, I haven't explained it well. He's capable of doing this. And then I might ignore it and just talk to him and... You you watch body language cues. If they know they're screwed up, you know, you just keep it rolling. And for me, this chaotic nature of it really works because I try and drive competition and cohesion for my culture. Teams play hard. I think that's really important. I think if you're stopping everything, which I was renowned for when I was younger, I don't think you're helping your players in games. You have to figure out what works for you and your mind. Coach, my last follow-up. Yesterday, Pat and I had a conversation with a group of coaches about post-drill wrap-ups with players or what happens right after a drill is done you know whether it's a water break whether it's a you know 30 second checking for understanding with players whether it's just the coaches talk your thoughts on maybe after you run a drill or how you all think about moving on to the next drill or checking with teams on you know were they learning what you want them to learn in that fashion yeah it's a good question what i've tried to do especially with younger teams is be very organized with how water breaks look tried to have them together, tried to have a drill. I used to, you know, marker of success is if we stimulated the players enough, they go have a drink break and they're interacting. They're either pissed off because they lost or they're talking about it. And that I always felt that was a sign of successful coaching. But it also gave me the forum to go over and talk to them if I felt needed without really cutting into stopping practice. Because I'm really big on not being a time bandit. I think it's one of the most selfish things you can do is use other people's time without consequence. So I really try and respect players' time. And that was one of those measures. And once players understand what you're doing and why, they're pretty good with it. And I wouldn't necessarily talk to them every time. Because I used to laugh if they were interacting. I thought that was way better if I was going over there. I always thought that was, hey, this is good. We did a good job in that drill. Half Mm. of them hate me. Half of them (laughs) (laughs) Well, Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing. That was a lot of fun. Coach, we've got one last question before we close the show. 
before we do, this was really fun. So thank you very much for your time and coming on the show today. We appreciate it. Fun for me also. Thank you, fellas. You guys are doing a good job helping the game and educating the, the game. Thank you. Thank you. Coach, our last question that we ask all the guests is, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Mentors. Being really deliberate. I think it's one of the most important things. Like when you're younger, you just have mentors by osmosis by being there. I sort of figured out when I was a little bit, I was still young, but I got a head coaching job very young. You know, I was coaching the second level in Australia, 27, 28. And then I really needed to learn. And it forced me to really be deliberate of setting up an inner circle and going out there and learning and nurturing. I mentioned one of those people, Mike Dunlap, before, who's really, really important, had a big part in me being here now talking to you and what I'm doing. And then, you know, mentors come and go and they change and you evolve. And, you know, looking at it like that, I think that really helped me. I didn't understand what I was doing for myself when I just sort of undertook that philosophy when I was younger, but it's been a really good thing for me. The weave is not dead. Exactly. That was number one. It's back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah still has some good qualities we might get into that but i uh, appreciate his thoughts on that for sure but let's get right into this so much here in the toughness stuff loved what he spoke on i'm going to kick it to you first though on your thoughts on this kind of the first bucket i really enjoyed i mean obviously what he eventually defined toughness at to him being physically courageous and then executing under pressure within that too he got into the competition integrity yeah teaching the importance of sacrifice I think he said running lanes, making closeouts, just like the unglamorous stuff. Just hearing his thoughts kind of there and how he views kind of the current state of the game and the modern player. I thought was interesting, especially his thoughts on the importance he felt of like younger kids playing against older kids and just playing. Yeah. You know, not doing skill workouts, but just getting them playing against older kids. Competition will drive their improvement. So I I thought that was really interesting, uh, kind of his opening thoughts on toughness. Use Jimmy Butler, I think, as an example. That's a really nice visual as we're recording this. But I love, like you mentioned, that stuff as well. I won't just reiterate it. The other thing I took away too was that the task and social stuff as well was a huge piece of that. And I liked how he sort of talked about his progression as a coach and how this stuff has become more and more and more important to him, more so than, you know, whatever, you know beautiful offense or defensive schemes or stuff like that. And I think we've probably felt that and learned that from a ton of coaches who have gone through this past of, you know, you you get in as an X and O guy and you're going to light the world on fire with the next best offense. And, and you might, and that's a great way to get into it. But then understanding eventually just no matter what you run, you know, what's in that locker room and how much they believe in you and each other is ultimately probably more important. I kind of liked his path to that. And he talked about that really nicely is how he got there and, and why that's important to him. Yeah. And I keep going back more and more recently. If I go a deep cut with coach Will Voigt, who I think was early to say, like, if you just get the buy-in, if you get them to play hard, like, honestly, you can run any offense and you're going to have success. Now to what limit, you know, will always, there's going to be other variables, but you will have success because the guys just believe and are competing hard. If I could just double down on your deep cut with Coach Voigt, I think going back to that, that was a discussion about peel switching and remembering back on what he talked about 
the heel switching came about because they trusted one another so much defensively to switch and communicate. And it was something that they kind of naturally did. And then it turned into a scheme because of what they had as a group. I believe it was a Angolian national team. Yeah, the Angolian national team. Yeah. And, And so, yeah, just to, you know, follow you on that deep cut, I think that was part of that decision as well with coach Floyd they just played hard and they played together and they trusted and they just started peel switching everywhere and i mean i guess if you know we just full circle it now i really did like coach cotter's thoughts on teaching switching early not because he necessarily likes switch but because it helps build the communication the cohesion that is important to winning so i thought that was also really interesting just putting it in through as he went on to say you know probably late game late in the seasons it has a lot of value switching but it's not like his go-to defense but he has the value of the ancillary benefits of teaching it i think if if i could pull out one thing that i kind of circled and starred or whatever and we talked about this right before we hopped on this but his thoughts on just the mess and how all the great coaches and practices he's ever been to it's not a perfect practice there's elements of it that are messy and we've talked about this bunch of coaches you and i like coaching's not always pretty and looks great it's sometimes the best practices are messy and they're overly competitive or the drill's not perfect or whatever it is. And I think that kind of led to, he spoke well on, was asking about kind of team toughness. And, you know, we talked individual toughness and mental toughness was great. And also like when you, I mean, you know, Pat, and I, like when you play another team, like it's just the team is tough. Like the staff is tough. Like there's no chinks in the armor anywhere. Like you really got to beat that team. And sometimes when you, you know, see a practice of those teams, they're hard practices. They're messy practices. Guys, you know, they get after guys or girls get after it. They're at it and it's not always perfect. And sometimes like a non-perfect drill or whatever, like there's something happening there too, that maybe there's some chemistry developing. Maybe there's some toughness developing or there's some grit or whatever. And going back, ultimately that's more important than maybe a perfectly executed drill of whatever you're trying to do. I just like that quite a bit. That was a big pull out for me on that conversation. Yes. And to your point, I guess now we can give the five man weave some love or the weave love because I think it, I mean, okay, the five man weave isn't messy, but I think the, the demands or the structure he places on it helps build that, like he said, that cohesion, that communication, these important elements that go into winning that, you know, of course the weave, maybe from a task cohesion, isn't really going to give you much, but placing the demands or how he viewed it has its benefits there. And It was just fun to kind of hit on that. Maybe this to a deeper point too is no matter what you do as a coach, whether you're a weave or not a weave coach, it's the reasoning behind it. He mentioned that too. It's like Mm -hmm. we put some constraints on it. There's conditioning going on. There's passing going on. There's communication going on. There's a task that they have to get done. Happy. It's hanging on the weave. It's (laughs) still got some life (laughs) for sure. Thanks, Coach Cotter (laughs) on that. Start, sub, sit as always a ton of fun. I'll throw it back to you on either one. I definitely enjoyed, I mean, whenever we can get these guys, these high-level coaches just talking defense, talking strategy, really enjoy it. I liked your follow-up a lot within defending shooters we're talking about, but on why to top lock versus chasing a shooter. And just to hear the thoughts, you know, on the screeners involved that they can pop. I like too, and maybe it fit in with the toughness, but if the shooter doesn't like contact and sometimes just like, just kind of get into his shorts and just bug them and yeah. top lock them. And, and then of course, ultimately too, like if you just trust the player, but I mean, I won't regurgitate all of his reasonings, but I enjoyed that conversation, just kind of getting mm-hmm. their brains ticking on 
the reasons behind why they do stuff and how they view certain actions. I agree. I think what that conversation also led to that I wrote down that I liked was innate defenders. And just when you have a really good defender, like he mentioned, there's these rule breakers or I forget the exact term, but offensive players that just live outside the norm. They can do stuff that other players can't. And he mentioned that like defensively too. And sometimes it depends on what they're going to do is based off who's the defender. And, you know, a guy doesn't need help for somebody else does, or is a rim protection versus not. And so I like that insight quite a bit as well in that conversation. Yeah. It reminds me of, I was rewatching the Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. And they were talking about Dennis Rodman when he was on Detroit. And I forget the coach who was talking, but it says he's given Dennis Rodman all this sort of instruction. And then Chuck Daly came over to the coach and just said, like, leave him alone. You don't put a saddle on a horse, you know, you just let him go. Guys that are so talented and gifted defensively and just innate feel and they'll know what to do that wasn't you and i defensively (laughs) we were more supporters of the peel switch yeah we we probably (laughs) started the peel switch back in the day early adopters (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) just moving to the second one as well i think that the drill structure i love that it kind of tied into a little bit of the first conversation the building toughness and the practice planning and so that was a nice kind of connecting piece and once again him talking about confusion was great and why that's important to him. And then I think too, the question or the one that we didn't put in there that we ultimately did sort of talk about was of his six things. He had time, score, language, confusion, teachable moments, and rotations. And we took teachable moments out and a follow-up I was maybe going to ask was if we put it in where it would have been for him. But he did talk about it within all of that. And I think that that was like a big takeaway there is, yeah, whatever you do for the rotations or the language, like knowing where to kind of stand and how to interact with a good player versus a maybe not as good player as you followed up with, that was really good too. Yeah. My last thought, I think what you touched on earlier when we were talking about just the mess of thing, and I just like you asked them about how you can, they kind of judge the drill afterwards or the process post drill analysis. And yeah, just said watching the guys at their water break, if they're pissed off, if they're communicating, talking about it. Yeah. I thought it ring pretty true in my eyes, just like that makes a lot of sense. Like, you know, whether how messy it was, did we get off target, off task? But if the guys were over there talking about it, you accomplished something. And I think that's a good kind of measuring for coaches, just kind of look at your guys and their reaction. Yeah, for sure. And I got to give a shout out to coaches. We had our Slapping Glass Plus roundtable yesterday and coach Ben Wilkins actually talked about after drill roundups or, you know, where they're checking for understanding. I thought like what he said in our roundtable is a great point and that sort of led to my question. And so yeah. shout out to him because I thought that was a great thing that he brought up and for Coach Cotter too to talk about what's going on afterwards. And maybe it wasn't like a check for understanding, but it was uh, hey, what are they doing at the water break? Yeah. Tells you if it was a good drill or not kind of a thing. So Pat, I think as we kind of wrap this up, I just really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, best of luck to coach cotter and the bulls obviously next season looking forward to watching them uh, anything else on your end no just a lot of fun and yeah appreciate coach cotter taking the time and yeah, being so thorough yeah absolutely oh, do this again next time yep thank you so much for listening to this episode Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.
But do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> <laughs>